The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Many times we feel paralyzed by fear and body hatred. In order to feel better about ourselves and live the life we really want to manifest, we have to own up to our difficult feelings and self-sabotaging thoughts and behaviors. We all enter this world naked, and now it's time to feel good naked, no matter what your body size or your life circumstances. This is Feel Good Naked Radio, and your host is Lar Redmond. On this program, Lar will help you become more embodied, self-empowered, and mindful to take charge of whom you really are and to live the life you deserve to live. Now, here's your host, Laura Redmond. Welcome back to Feel Good Naked Radio. I am your host, Laura Redmond, and I am really excited about my guest today, Colin Beaven. Many of you know exactly who he is. He's become a huge celebrity in the world with incredible causes and issues that he's passionately behind. But I wanted to um, just mention my own story about Colin before I formally introduce him, which is to say that many years ago, I can't even tell you the year, I was in New York City visiting my sister, and she had a beloved dog named Nemo, a boxer. May he rest in peace. And I was walking him at night, dark, outside in her neighborhood, and I ran into Colin. Never had met him. He was walking his beautiful dog named Frankie, and we just started talking, and I had this feeling, and it's relevant with our show today, that was just comfortable. It, it was like a immediate familiarity. I'm going to say it was probably a, a soulful comfort that gave me the chance to just talk to him. And we walked and we talked and we shared stories and realized at the end of our jaunt that we were in the same building. He lived in my sister's building and knew her. So we went back into the building and said our goodbyes. And I didn't see Colin for a long time, never ran into him again, and then started to learn about the work he was doing in the world. He became extraordinarily well-known through his No Impact Man project, which we'll get into. But on a, a formal level, I just want all the listeners to know who this is if you haven't already met him in the world that we live in through the web or otherwise. Colin's writing, speaking, consulting, and activism have encouraged tens of thousands of people to examine their lives to discover what's really important to them. It is Colin's mission to wake people up on both individual and collective levels to ways of life and doing business that are healthier and happier, not only for individuals, but for our society and our world, which has never been more relevant. Colin Beaven is among the world's best-known spokespeople on environmental issues, consumerism, and human quality of life. He has been called one of the 10 most influential men 
And his blog was selected as one of the 15 environmental blogs by Time magazine. He's written many books. The one that you've probably heard of is No Impact Man, which also became a documentary starring Colin and his family. And his newest book is How to Be Alive, a guide to the kind of happiness that helps the world. Colin is also a Dharma teacher in the Quantum School of Zen and a board member of Transportation Alternatives. He's been on countless television shows, radio stations, and I am so honored that he's on my show today. Welcome, Colin Beaven. Hi, Laura. It's so good to be with you. It's so good to be with you again, and it's been wonderful to go deep into your work the last few weeks, learning about what you're doing, and then reflecting back to that night I met you, realizing how much of our time on the planet since then has been within a very spiritual realm, a mind-body-spirit realm. I know that is um, the point of my radio show, is to bring information to people from the experts in their fields. And I want to jump right in by asking you, in your own life, when do you recall at the earliest age feeling a sense of existential spiritual awareness? Oh, huh. Um, geez, I remember from, I had some early tragedies when I was growing up. I had a, a baby brother who died when I was just four and an uncle who committed suicide. And I, 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 I think that those things caused me to start asking questions pretty early. And um, I certainly remember, uh, I remember that experience that all of us have as children, I think, when you're eight or nine and, and you, you, you um, ponder this question about the size of the universe, which people tell us is, is as big in, as infinity. And, um, and I remember thinking about that, how big is the universe and feeling um, overwhelmed and, and frightened and, um, and, and, and maybe even a little bit frightened by, by life. Um, at the same time, having a sense of wonder and mystery. And so I, I remember for myself, my spiritual questing began when I was 10 or 11 years old. Hmm. Was your family a religious family? Were you brought through the institution of religion? Or would you say your spirituality came through the traumas and tragedies that you just mentioned? I think, I think all of us, underneath all of our questions and personalities and I think all of us have this fundamental question like what am I what am I and and what's my purpose in the world what's my relationship to the world you know um, I, I think that question is within all of us and sometimes the surface stuff gets pushed away faster which I think the tragedy did but 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 no there, I had no particular religious upbringing but I, I do remember when I was about eight years old there was this, uh, I grew up in a little town called Westport, Massachusetts, a little beautiful countryside, seaside town. And there was this beautiful um, New England white clabbered uh, uh, Methodist church. And I remember walking by it one Sunday morning and looking, I could see into the belfry and I could see somebody was ringing the bell. And um, the next week I went to church too, um, not necessarily because I wanted to know anything about God, but because pulling that rope sure looked like fun. And sure enough, <laughs> I, did. I did. I did. I did get to ring that bell a few times. Uh, 
That's so great. It's interesting what compels the the brain and the spirit when we're little people. And I always find it interesting to ask others what their memory is of that, because in a way that is the, as you put it, the quest to know the purpose of our existence, our incarnation, whatever time we might have on the planet. And then whatever one says may be their spiritual foundation is so unique to those particular moments in life that are defined. So you've had many. I mean, your your public life is is very. It's extraordinary to think of what you've done in your life so far and what you'll continue to do. Your work has never been more relevant. Um, so I, I could ask you to start with No Impact Man, but I really want you to start where you need to start today to explain the purpose of your mission, what you're doing right now with this book, with the groups of people you're leading, as you teach many people how to become much more awake. Where do you want to jump in? Because you've done so many incredible things. What do you feel is the defining point to start with the greatest message you have today? I think the what underlies all my work um, the, 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 the last two books that I've written, the documentary, the speaking that I do, um, is a desire to help people to wake up to the, to the power they have to change their own lives and the lives of others, um, and indeed the, the course of the world itself. I, I think that we've, so many of us have become disempowered and think, think that, they, that the possibility of living a life according to our own values and our own passions and our own world con- concerns feels so far away. Um, and yet I think, I think our survival as a species actually depends upon us returning, not following directions, outside directions, um, and, and following the rules, but looking deeply inwards, um, to our own love and compassion and passion, um, and waking up to our ability to use it. So I, I, I suppose um, you could almost sum up everything I have to say with just like you do matter. You you can both you can both have a life that feels meaningful and purposeful, and that has a, an important impact on the world around you. Um, and uh, I guess if 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 if, if we were going to have a, a, a ten second interview, that's 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 what what I would say. Well, one of the quotes I loved in your recent book is that each of us is like a butterfly whose wing flaps could start a hurricane. I loved that. I think that's so relevant. What I want to ask you, though, Colin, is when you think about the state of affairs, um, you're in Brooklyn. My New York community have been saying that with Trump's election, there's a a sense that you all are living it in a a very... um, in a locational way with the fact that his family is in New York City and, and there's just so much turmoil and chaos and confusion around how to find the empowerment of self again when I think there's a collective feeling of defeat. So maybe give us all a sense of why we've never needed to tap into this power more than we do right now as an individual. I think, I mean, there are a couple of, there are two reasons why it's so important that we tap into our own power. One, one is because the old societal stories don't work for individuals anymore. And two is because they don't work for the society or the planet anymore. So let me explain. 
there was this, there was our, our cultural myth was basically that um, uh, something along the lines of that the playing field is even, which of course it, it, it never really has been, but that the playing field is even and all you have to do is work hard and go to college, um, go work for a corporation, you'll be paid well, you'll find a romantic partner, uh, you'll live together happily, you'll be able to raise your kids, They'll, everybody will have health insurance, um, and you'll retire in the end with enough wealth to enjoy your retirement. And, and me meantime, you get to feel as though you're helping the world just by paying your taxes, which pays for societal services like police and fire and social services. And, um, and, and that also, when you take your money and you spend it, that you're actually helping to employ people through by, by keeping the wheels of production going. That's, that's the old societal myth. But now, first of all, um, even if you go to college, there's no promise that you'll get a job that makes you happy. There's, there's, there's hardly a promise of health care if you have a job because so many of us are contract workers now. For so many people, retire, the idea of retirement is a, is a pipe dream. So, so um, that side's broken down. And then on top of that, even if you do manage to make it work, you get the feeling that you're doing so at the expense of other people because so many people of us are working for companies and corporations who mission, whose missions we don't believe in and who we feel are, are actually harming the world. So that's on the individual level that the story has broken down. On, 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 on the collective level, um, our, our habitat, this planet that we depend upon for our health and our safety and our security and our food and our water and our air, it can't it can no longer sustain all of us having um, cars, all of us having TVs, all of us, you know, this whole consumer cycle. It just simply can't sustain it. Um, and, and we see this in climate change. We see this in, you know, even in the United States now, places like Flint, Michigan, not having water that we can drink safely. Um, and, and on top of that, we're seeing that this system not only is degrading our habitat's ability to support us, but it's but it's also um, the the it's it's becoming less fair. It was always unfair, but it's becoming less fair than it's ever been. And we're seeing giant inequalities in income, inequalities in standard of living, um, and and um, and so we're in a crisis. Uh, there's a there's a crisis in our way of life um, that um, that that both in our that that affects us both personally and societally. And how do you make sense of the fact that not everyone on this planet is screaming out about this? How can there be such a divide or a, a numbing out where this is just ignored or completely not being addressed? If, if it is the crisis that we certainly know it is, how can it be so quiet in a, in a really large global way? Well, I, I, I've, First of all, I have to say that I'm optimistic about human nature. So I, I don't, I, I'm not a very blaming person. So I feel more compassion for um, people who you might think are asleep than judgment. Um, and in fact, I, I think that you know I like to say that enlightenment, um, or enlightenment, or or knowledge, or understanding, um, they don't give us the right to judge. They give us the responsibility to teach, right? So, so when I think about why people are quiet, um, partly it's because that's what we've taught to be. We've, we've been taught 
you know, in our educational system for, for, for 16 years, if you, if you go to college more, if you go further, um, that our job is to suppress who we really are and what we really want and learn how to do things like sit still at a desk, do homework, um, go to a cubicle and do a job and do things that you don't want to do. We're, we're literally educated for years, year after year after year after year to suppress who we are, suppress what we care about in order that we can fit into the machine. And it used to be, like I said before, that if we did, did do that and fit, fit into the machine, that we got good, that we were, we felt we were guaranteed of good rewards, but that story is breaking down. So, so, so to be able to wake up, to be able to say, I feel as though there's something wrong in this world and I need to do something about it. We're not taught to be civically engaged either, right? So that takes a big, that actually takes a lot, right? For people to, to get to that point. Yeah. So when you're in your own life before No Impact Man became your pet project, what was the moment in your journey where you just knew you had to do this? What excited you and, and provoked you to say, that's it, I, I have got to do this experiment? So um, in my 20s, I worked as a public relations consultant, but I only worked for um, organizations that had a, a mission of some sort of social good. So in my 20s, I had a work where I felt as though I was helping the world in some way. And that, that was important to me and gave me a meaning and a feeling of meaning and purpose. And then I realized, <clears throat> so I was taking care of my world concerns, as it were. But then I realized that wasn't what I, what, what I felt passionate about, about doing. I wasn't using the parts of myself that were important to me. So in my 30s, that's when I became a writer because I realized I wanted to be a communicator. I wanted to write books. I wanted to speak and run workshops and do all that kind of stuff. Um, but, but at first I wrote history books. Um, so, so I moved from my world concerns into my personal passions, if you were. Um, and there was started to be a yearning within me to actually synthesize the two, to use what I most loved doing with my time in service of what I most cared about in the world. I wanted to bring them together. Um, and then the external, and I, and I, I felt that longing, but the external events that actually kind of forced me to do something was a combination of three things. One was the um, increasing news of global warming. Uh, two was the Iraq war and seeing that, you know, that, that um, several thousand Americans had died there as well as um, over a hundred thousand um, Iraqis, which was essentially a war for oil. So, so we had climate change on the one hand, um, resulting from burning fossil fuels, then we were we had the the wars and the in the and the tragedies that we were suffering in order to get these fossil fuels. And then the third thing was in between our way of life, the 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 way that we lived that was supposed to be powered by this quest for and use of fossil fuel. Um, and that way of life, the consumer's way of life. I looked around my friends and my family, and people were working twelve and fourteen hour days not spending time with people that they loved and they cared about, not using the skills and the talents that they, that they prized in themselves. Um, and meanwhile, 25% of Americans at any one time can be diagnosed with um, depression or major anxiety disorder. So it seemed like, geez, all of this, and that's in the developed world. In the developing world, 
a billion people don't have access to clean drinking water. So I just, mm-hmm. it just kind of came together to me this, like, I want my passions to be used to serve my con- world concerns. And I can't wait anymore because I'm too bothered by what's happening. Well, and for anyone, this show airs across the planet in the entire world, and I just want to be sure that everyone knows the name of this project was No Impact Man. It's a documentary and a book. One of my favorite movies. I just, I loved the way it was done. I I felt that there was such um, grace and beauty in the way that you took away these privileges and the access to the world as we are spoiled and know it, and then showed the joy and the reward that came from giving up what many would consider a great thing or a happy thing or a bonding thing, when in fact it was the polar opposite. I found that very enlightening. And I, and I want to know in your experience of that project, what's the thing that you take from that now when you think back over the No Impact Man project, the movie, the speaking, the book, the college campuses, the government? What do you think about when you consider that project? What do, what do you take with it in, in memory? Well, that, that's, a, that's, actually, that's a, actually one of my favorite questions, and I'll answer it, but I, I just want for the listeners because I don't think we've actually said what the No Impact Man project was yet. So let me just say that the No Impact Man project was a year in which um, I and my family lived as environmentally as possible in the middle of New York City. And when I say we lived as environmentally as possible, I don't mean we recycled more. I mean that if, it, if, if something had to be recycled, it didn't enter our lives. Um, we only ate food that was produced within 100 miles. We didn't use um, any form of transportation that... Um, that required uh, fossil fuel use. Uh, we turned the heat off and the electricity off in our apartment. So we lived causing as little impact as we could while also um, giving back in certain ways, uh, volunteering to take trash out of the river, planting trees, this type of thing. So the idea was that on the one hand, we reduced our negative impact. And on the other hand, we increased our positive impact with the idea that Reduce negative, press increase positive would 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 make no net environmental impact, um, which an environmental scientist will tell you kind of it makes is nonsense, um, technically speaking. But from a philosophical point of view, it was really just a question of can, can any of us live doing more good than harm? Um, so so that was the project, and and it went for a year, and as you say, it was a book and a film, and also it got gigantic amounts of press coverage. Um, it was, it was on the front page of the New York Times. Um, I was six times on Good Morning America and twice on the Colbert Report. Um, it, just, it just was a, a, a big thing in my life. Um, and I mentioned the press because when you ask what did I take away from this thing, you know, most writers kind of um, labor in obscurity. Um, <laughs> it's a fact of life of people who write books. We, we don't really expect anybody to care about what we do. And, and if they do care about what they do, we, they, we, we, we expect them to care after the book came out. But this all blew up before the book or the film came out because of a blog that I wrote. Um, and so suddenly I was in this position where I, was, I had to talk about things that I cared about and things that I felt affected the world um, publicly. And... Um, and I had a real crisis because I was like, who am I to say anything, really, um, 
Uh, I mean, write to a few random book readers is one thing, but to be talking to all these people. Um, and so what I really took away from the project that I continue to take away and, and that, I, that, that, that I think is largely my message is that um, all of us have the right to a voice. Um, that, 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 that becoming uh, engaged in this world to become part of our communities and to work together. It doesn't, and I'm, I'm not espousing um, fierce individualism. I'm, I'm espousing being part of our communities and having a voice in our communities and working together for the best lives for ourselves and our local and planetary communities. What I really took away from the, the, the project is that we have voices, we can use them, and, and, and chances are we're going to live the, mo- the most joyful lives if we use our voices in whatever way um, is, 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 is in whatever way suits us to use those voices. Well, and I want to also mention that you had a dog and a daughter during that year that you were also experimenting and using these different approaches to the least impact while raising a child and having a dog. So interesting would be, and I I don't want you to have to feel as if you're speaking for her, but what do you think your daughter would say was her memory of that? Because in back to being a young soul, how do you think that may have affected her experience of growing up with that year in that setting, or do you think the memory is not as great as if she were older at the time? Well, I, I mean, I think <clears throat> I think she probably remembers remembering, as it were. You know, that she, <laughs> yeah. Isabella was um, the year of no impact. She was one and a half to two and a half. Um, and um, uh, I, I will tell you this one story. So, so everybody thought that we that what we were doing was a project in extreme. Uh, 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 self um, self mortification or self denial, <laughs> you know, because we were taking so many things away from ourselves, including the TV. But in a lot of ways, what we found is that we were taking away our distractions so that we could get down to what was really important in life. And so, for example, one time um, I, with Isabella during this project, I, I had she had she would go to a babysitter's uh, a little group childcare during the day, and one time we were coming home uh, from there and um, it was pouring rain and she, she was riding on my shoulders and I had an umbrella. And as is the case in New York city, like when you can't use a taxi, which I couldn't because of the project, I couldn't use a fossil fuel using vehicle. There are always millions of taxis. And when you really need a taxi, there's no taxi. So <laughs> walking down sixth Avenue, it was pouring rain. There was lots of empty taxis going by, but I couldn't hail one. And we're walking home and the, I was Bella was riding my shoulders. I was holding the umbrella up. I was trying to cover her, but the wind was blowing and it kept blowing the umbrella off and she would start crying and I would wrestle it back and she would <laughs> stop crying. And then on, and I said, I'm, I'm so sorry, honey, I'm really trying to keep you dry. And then as, as we went on, I, I noticed, I finally noticed that she was not crying when I um, covered her. Uh, so when, when she was not crying when I, when the umbrella blew off her, she was crying when I put the, the umbrella over her. She wasn't crying when she felt the rain. She was crying when she couldn't feel the rain. Mm. And so I took the umbrella down and we walked home and we got soaking wet together. And she, of course, loved it. And um, so, so 
with regards to her, what happened I felt was um, we, I learned through her, in fact, um, to get back in touch with what was actually important in life. Like we are all running around trying so hard to make sure that we're not touched by the weather, that we're <laughs> protected from the world. And Bella was teaching me, no, the, 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 the true human experience is to allow ourselves to be part of the world. So, so, you know, there were things like that that happened. And then um, as the years have gone by and Bella, Bella has traveled with me um, when I give talks and whatnot, and even sometimes when I give a public talk, um, she, she has a habit of wanting to be on stage with me uh, when I give a talk. And oftentimes, sometimes I, I've seen videos of me giving a talk and the, lo- the audience is laughing uproariously, and I think to myself, oh, I was really funny that day, but actually what turns out on the video is that you see Bella behind me is doing something <laughs> funny. Um, but, 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 but sometimes people ask her questions, um, and, and what's happened in the long term for her, like, for example, she, we went to the Women's March in D.C. together, um, but since then, there have been uh, meetings of the Women's March organizers that I wasn't able to attend, and Bella has found other adults to take her, that mm. she, she, in her own right, as a result of this journey that we've been on together, um, actually believes in her power to change the world. She, it doesn't occur to her that it's not possible to do things, um, and she's like an empowered little citizen all of her own now. Mm, that's magnificent. And, you know, I bet for her it must be such a special thing to watch the documentary, No Impact Man, and to see herself as that little person in that project with you. M- Michelle, my co-parent, she's like, it's like, it's, she always says, it's like one big home, home movie we made just for all to have all our lives. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. that's so spectacular. And then I can't imagine your daughter not being an activist and a real leader and I do believe that her generation is the great hope in lots of respects because I note such a greater awareness with young people. I work a lot in my coaching practice with high school-aged young people. Some of them are actually middle school. But I'm impressed with, as we were speaking before we went live, the they pronoun versus you know she or he, the understanding of personal responsibility, the fact that you do have a voice and it matters, that you do want to go to a march and protest, that you, your sign will be seen. There is a there is an awakening that is very hopeful to me with Bella's age group and the younger generation today. Yes, what do you? I mean- I, sorry, I was just going to say, I, I mean, I think that too, that, that, that Bella's age group and a bit older too, you know, the millennials are questing at, people always are trashing the millennials, but I actually think that they're, they have things, their heads screwed on straight and are looking to do what's important. People trash them because they say they don't want to, they don't want to do what they don't want to do. Um, <laughs> and I think, yeah, there's exactly, there's, yeah, exactly. That's right. And, um, um, but I also think it's important whenever um, you and I are about the same age, and I, I also think it's really important to be careful with this, you know, the, the younger generation are doing so great because we can't let ourselves off the hook, right? No, so yes, our, yeah. exactly. And that's a perfect segue to your latest book, How to Be Alive, A Guide to the Kind of Happiness that Helps the World. Tell us what 
motivated you to write that, what what your hopes are with the book, and what's happened since the book has been released. So How to Be Alive is is re- basically a follow-up to No Impact Man. And after after um, No Impact Man, the book and the film came out, I traveled around the world and people just kept asking me. First, they, first, one of the things they kept saying to me was, how do I be more like you? You know, how do I do what you did? How do I be more like you? And um, that's an interesting um, conundrum because what, what they were asking more or less is give me some new directions. You know, maybe the old directions are wrong, but what are the new directions? And I would always say, um, you know, our job, your job is not to be more like me. It's to be more like you, but to be even more like you than you are already, which means, which means find and understand what your values are. Find out what your passions are. Find out what, what you care about in the world and use your passions in service of, of, of your concerns. You know, there's a lovely um, quote by uh, Frederick Buchner, the Christian writer. He says, um, God calls us to the place where um, our greatest passions meet the world's greatest sorrows. Um, mm. and, and I think in many ways that's the definition of the life well lived. So, so, but the questions that people had was, well, well how do I do that? Because as I, we talked about earlier, our educational system kind of teaches us just the opposite, not to listen to ourselves, how to stop listening to ourselves. So how do we get back in touch with ourselves, understand what our values are, and then manifest those values in 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 what I call our relationships to the world, like we we re, we relate to the world in in so many ways in in our food choices, in our transportation choices, in our career choices, in our leisure time choices, in our romantic choices, in our friendship choices. So how do we actually manifest our values in all of those relationships that have we have with the world, and and how do we not just only make sure that we get what we need? from the world, but give what we need to give to the world so that we're both getting security, that is safety and our own needs met from our relationships with the world, but also meaning and purpose. So, you know, I think about it is that, that our security comes from what we get to the, get from the world and our meaning and purpose comes from what we give to the world. So how do we have relationships, complete and full and holistic relationships with the world where we get both, where we're actually getting what we need, but also giving what we want to need, what, what, what we need to, to give. And, and that more or less is what How to Be Alive is about. It's, about. it's about how each person can discover for themselves who they are um, it's not, it's not about following my direction, but, but, but discovering for themselves who they are, what they want to be doing with their, their time, um, what they want to be, who, who and what they want to be serving um, with what they do, and, and how to actually find a pathway towards that given your present circumstances. Like how do we, how do we within our particular situations, <coughs> excuse me. Um, actually do those things. If, if, if we're, say, stuck in a job we can't leave, um, how do we still find a way to have meaning and purpose um, in that kind of a situation? And what would you answer to that? What would you say is the, is the answer if you're in a job that you hate and you really yearn to be a painter and you are stuck in a cubicle pushing buttons and answering phone calls? And there's a there are a bunch of there obviously it's a comp- complex issue and there are a bunch of different ways to approach it but there's a study that shows that um, that the in a hospital 
the, they did a study in a hospital and they looked at the job and life satisfaction of the doctors. And they also looked at the job and life satisfaction of the sanitary workers within the hospital, the people who were in charge of um, getting their dirty sheets and washing them and uh, washing the floors and all that kind of thing. And they found that the, that, that, um, the, the people who had the most satisfaction with their work were the people who uh, thought of their work as a, as a being found meaning um, in terms of how they thought about their work. Like, so they thought of their work as being of service to the patients. And so they found that regardless of whether you were a doctor or a sanitary worker, it all depended on what, what your motivation was for doing that job. Now, so, 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 so that uh, indeed some of the sanitation workers were way more satisfied with their jobs than the doctors were. So that, that's not to say that message can be misconstrued as saying, well, if you should just think differently about your work and just stay where you are. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is that most of us, there's, a, there's something that's called job crafting. And job crafting is where we kind of look at the fact that we're in particular jobs and we look for ways to use our jobs, use our positions in our jobs to be of service and to use the skills that we care about most. So let's just say for the sake of argument, you know, we talked about on, on the one end of the scale, domestic workers. Let's say, let's say that you work in public relations for a hospital um, and it's, it's, you know, it's killing you, this PR stuff, but you happen to love children. Well, maybe you can find a way to actually work with the children's department in the hospital and be videoing children and putting those videos up on the websites or, or, or something like, at least temporarily looking to craft what you do and how you do it within your confines um, until such time as you can actually find a different job if that's what you need. Is that what is meant when you are referred to as a lifestyle redesign expert, like someone who, I mean, would that be an example of what that means? Yes, but but we also, you know, one of the cultural stories that we tell ourselves, you know, another part of the cultural myth that's breaking down is that the the path to happiness is through our career, our romantic partnership, um, and what we own. That's kind of that's kind of the recipe we're told we ought to mix, um, and 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 um, and that causes us to have a, if if we are pursuing only those three things that causes us to have a, a certain kind of lifestyle. So so my point here is that lifestyle redesign doesn't just mean about changing how you approach your job, but it, it changes how you approach the use of your free time and and even whether you spend all your free time chasing after a romantic partnership or whether you spend your free time trying to build an interconnected group of friends, um, a community as it were, because actually a lot of the research shows that having an interconnected group of friends um, causes us to be more happy than a mediocre romantic partnership. Hmm. Um, Alternative, you know, uh, interestingly enough, another thing with regards to romantic partnerships is that the um, we're, the research also shows that the quality of our commute um, can have as big an impact on our happiness and life satisfaction as whether or not we have a romantic partnership. So to actually learn to break out of this job, romantic partnership stuff, paradigm, and actually look at all the relationships we have with the world and ask, how can we manifest our values in all of those relationships? In our career, yes, if we can. 
but also how can we do it in other areas or how can we downsize even so that we don't need to work in a career we don't like so much and, and get to manifest our values in different ways. How do we look at our lives? How do we look at our lives from the point of view of what our values are as opposed to how do we um, earn the most money? That's so helpful because then that PR person might be able to not, she could downsize or he could downsize or they could downsize and then not have to work in PR, but could perhaps work with children or the artist example I gave might be able to be a painter if their expenses weren't where they are. And most people's are when they realize, wait, I don't need this TV. I don't need this many rooms. I don't need whatever it is you don't need. Why do you have it? And maybe that is a great place to start if the job is so dissatisfactory. So there's a there's a story that I tell in How to Be Alive. It's about a woman who grew up in Southern California, and she loves to surf and she loves to work with children, and she gets her master's degree, and then she finds the highest paying job she can, um, and it happens to be in the middle of the country, um, and which means that she can no longer surf every day. Um, so, but she feels stuck in this job because she needs to earn as much money as possible so she can fly back to the coast to go surfing. Um, Meanwhile, her passion is to work with children, but what she finds is that she's getting stuck in constant meetings all the time um, with her colleagues and spending also a lot of time driving and moving in between clients' houses. So it turns out she discovers she's only spending 10 10 hours a week working with children and not surfing at all. and one way of thinking about this is that, so therefore I have to keep pushing my shoulder at the door and earning more and more money so that I can go surfing, you know, and so that I can spend time with kids. Um, but eventually what she comes to is she realizes that she could move back to the coast. Um, she could work few hour, fewer hours in, in, a, in, a, in a different job outside of her field, um, her career field, a, a fewer hours. Um, reduce her expenses, get to go surfing every day, and actually spend more time with children through volunteer work than she was in her paid work, if you see what I mean. So so that actually, um, just by th- thinking of it, because it's ludicrous if you think about it, like I have, to get, I have to move to the middle of the country so that I can get a high-paying job so that I can fly home. <laughs> oh, God, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 so how do we think, who are, I call this, I call this building your house where you live, right? So you figure out where you, where spiritually and emotionally and value-wise, where do you actually live? Who are you? And then build your, build your life around that as opposed to um, moving somewhere else outside of where you live spiritually and then having to work so hard to earn enough money to return to where you live. Mm-mm, yeah. We build a life based on our values instead. Yeah, that's so great. And I loved what you said in How to Be Alive about community and neighborhood when you spoke about where you live in Brooklyn and who lives below you and next to you and above you and across the street from you and to really be part of where you are and where you live and to know what is around you. Another important part of life that it can get further and further away from someone's reality if they're seduced by the disembodiment of life versus the embodiment of life. 
Right. So, I mean, so you're referring to the beginning of the book where I kind of, I'm, I parody. Um, so how to be alive, I call it, um, it sits in the self-help section of the bookstore, but I, but I say that the, 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 the age of self-help is kind of dead, that what we need now is each other help and that, that how to be alive is an each other help book. Um, because self-help is a little bit like looking for the best deck chair on the Titanic, you know, like <laughs> we need to be keeping the, the boat afloat together. So we need each other help, not self-help. And so what, what, sometimes when you read your typical self-help book, what it's, it starts off by saying, you know, I have a million dollar house and I know a lot of movie stars and um, I, you know, I know these CEOs and um, I start off uh, how to be alive saying, I don't have an expensive house <laughs> and I, and I, I don't know, you know, so, well, I know a couple of movie stars because of No Impact Man, but I don't know that many movie stars. And I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know all these CEOs, but I do have control over, over my time and I do know my neighbors and I do get to use my time in service of the things that I care about. So um, that's, 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 that's kind of, that's the just letting people know the little section that you're referring to. Well, and it's important. It it spoke to me because two years ago I left a 3,800 square foot house on the Willamette River and I moved into a very small one bedroom uh, apartment in urban Portland, Oregon. And it has been so wonderful and soul satisfying to know my neighbors, to be in a building where I know who lives around me and to have contact verbally and physically as we walk in or out with groceries and to be out on the street and know those that live near me. And it really has made a huge difference in my, quote, happiness factor versus being in a larger, more remote location. So that spoke to me in your book because that's somewhat of how I kind of got rid of what wasn't working anymore in my journey. And it really made a difference. And it did begin with where I was living and what I really needed and getting rid of anything that wasn't something that brought me joy or satisfaction or felt soulful for my well-being. And that that was big. That was a change that I think when anyone makes it, it might seem a lot more frightening than it becomes once you're in it. And looking back on it, I think that's why that spoke to me about your reference to the bigger house, the million dollars, the two-car garage, the celebrity lifestyle is so confusing if you aren't in your soul self. Which, which begs the question, people often ask me, you know, so what, so what, does, what do you do? How do you begin to live a life based on your values? And in No Impact Man, people said, what's the, what's the best choice if you want to live environmentally? Um, and the answer at the end of the movie, um, I said was to become, to, to volunteer at and become part of an environmental organization, because then what would happen is without you would be immersed in working with people who share your values and know more than you. And that's how you would learn and also be supported in what you were trying to do with your life. And even if you don't care about environment, if you care about, you know, if you, you might have some other sort of, um, big social concern or want to change your life in a certain way. Um, the advice I give most often to people is to find a community of people who are walking on a similar path. So even in the case of, you know, um, in how to be alive, there's a story of somebody who chooses to become a vegetarian and she comes from a family that are just big meat eaters and they don't understand 
her being vegetarian at all and so and don't support it and make fun of her and so she actually finds a vegetarian group and shares recipes with them and gets support and has her values affirmed by them um, and sometimes people think oh so you're saying leave your family but actually what she said this this the 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 Sasha the woman whose story I tell in the book is that finding this community of people who shared her values actually allowed her to stay engaged with her family because she got the strength to be herself within her family from the community as opposed to if she had been on her own and didn't have the strength and would have had to choose choose between her values and her family because it takes so much strength to be in a community that doesn't share your values so 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 it, so so just to say if there's somebody listening and they're like yeah I want to live a values based life um a, a, a big step forward is to find other people, um, if you can, who live near you. Um, if you can't, um, who you can talk to on the internet, um, who can actually support and affirm you for who you are. Oh, definitely. Tell us what it means to be a Dharma teacher. So I'm, uh, I've been um, sitting in meditation for, I don't know, 20 years. Well, about 20 years, um, and, I, and I do that in a, what we call a Zen school. It's confusing to say school because it's not really, a, it's, 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 it's really a Zen tradition. Um, it's called the Kwan um, School of Zen, K-W-A-N-U-M. Um, and Kwan um, by the way, it's Korean and it means world sound. So the kind of whole emphasis of our school is hear world sound. It means to hear the, the suffering of the world and be able to respond to it. Um, so, um, uh, I really love, um, the approach to, to, I love the Zen approach because it, it doesn't offer answers. It, what it really does is, um, directs you to, to, to stay still with the questions. So, um, our practice is, is, um, we sit and we follow our breath just like any, um, meditation tradition, but we also kind of gently hold this question, what am I? What am I? Um, and if you're honest, you know, your, your mind will flood with ideas. But if you're honest, you'll see that those are all ideas. And that underneath all the ideas that are coming in answer to that question is the fact that is don't know. What am I? Don't know. And um, to have to learn to actually sit with that not knowing and there and then be able to respond to the world not through our ideas, but to respond directly from to from what we perceive and what natural reaction arises. Um, that's 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 what the Zen tradition is. And to be, I'm a senior Dharma teacher, um, and what that means is that I I, I um, in my school I I get to in my tradition I, I get to teach people meditation and I. Um, get to give talks and answer questions and have what we call consulting interviews with students where students come in and ask questions about their practice and I, and I answer. But, but, but really, in, in the largest sense, what it means to be a senior Dharma teacher is it, it, means, it, it means that I have, in my, in, in my own way, a, a practice of inquiring into my nature and asking, you know, what am I and what's my relationship to the world? And, and that practice of, of sitting, of, you know, sitting every day and holding that question deeply um, and, um, 
is what informs helps to inform all my work as I go out into the world. Um, and I'm not espousing uh, Zen meditation for 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 anybody in particular. It suits my temperament, but 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 holding on to and returning to these questions, these human like we talked about at at, at the beginning of our conversation. Um, that all of us have this big question, like, what am I in the face of this gigantic universe? What actually am I? And we know how to go to the moon and we know how to go deep under the sea um, in submarines. But, but as a culture, we, we've yet to actually study, like, what, what is our purpose of being here? And returning to that question, regardless of your spiritual or religious discipline, to, to actually hold on to that question and be with that mystery, um, allows us to become, I, I, is what allows us, one of the things that allows us to become truly human in the face of our own lives and the suffering that we see in the world. That is so beautifully stated. I, I love living with questions, and it it's something that I find is a very peaceful angle to take within self, because if you think about the way we're trained to think, it's the answer that is the training or the solution to the problem. But to really go in the opposite direction of that creates its own solution. <laughs> but it's by living with the unknown, the question, the polarity or the peace that comes through that question. But there's no way for me to have gotten there without making having a relationship with the question. So it speaks to me deeply what you just said. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, and also because I have a teacher who says, who says our practice is about learning to live comfortably with not knowing. And, and that's important because if we're not comfortable with not knowing, then, then we build all these stories about what the world is and how the world is. And then we start to live according to those stories instead of according to what we can see and taste and feel and touch and hear. Like we live according to the story instead of according to actual reality. And it's when we live according to stories instead of reality that we start causing suffering for ourselves and for other people. So not knowing, as you say, is, is, it's really crucial. Crucial. Colin Beeman, you are such a spectacular human being. I am so grateful that you're on the planet. And I want other people to know how to find you, where they can be part of your social media world. Give us all your digits so everyone can be part of your world. Sure. So, so um, I do put out a, a, a weekly or sometimes other weekly newsletter. So, and if and and a lot of what I say and and whatnot's on my website. I blog on my website. So. Um, people can sign up for my newsletter or drop by at my website. It's colinbevan.com. I'll spell it. It's C-O-L-I-N-B-E-A-V-A-N.com. Um, and also I'm on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, all the same, at, just at Colin Bevan. Thank you for not correcting my Bevan. It's Bevan. Bevan. It oh, looks okay. like Bevan, but it's Bevan. It, it's, it, it, I, I like to say it rhymes with heaven. <laughs> that's a great one I always say my name Lara rhymes with star so yeah. my star will be in your heaven because you nice. are you are a great guide and a beautiful leader and thank you so much for the work you're doing in the world and the way that you bring consciousness to the whole 
that is all of us. And my tagline for this show is you complete you and you're a beautiful example of that. So thank you, Colin Bevan, for being with me today. Thank you, Laura. It's, 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 I'm humbled by what you said. Thank you. That's so kind. Thank you for listening to Feel Good Naked Radio with Laura Redmond. Please join us live again next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until our next show, be you and feel great in your own skin.